Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. This is part two of episode 36 in the book of John, entitled Jesus' High Priestly Prayer, where we discuss John chapter 17, verses 13 through 26. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses today? Okay, so we're going to finish looking at Jesus' high priestly prayer, and um, we saw some last time, and then uh, we're going to resume today. And uh, the prayer in John 17 is just an incredible uh, insight into the prayer life of Jesus. It's the longest prayer we have from Jesus, and it's rich with theological truth. Breaks into three parts. Jesus prays for himself, for his own glory. Uh, Jesus prays for his apostles, those that are immediately around him that night in the upper room. And then Jesus uh, prays for all believers throughout all time. It's really quite remarkable. So we're going to talk about the theological, the powerful aspects of how Jesus prays for us. Well, I'm going to go ahead and read John chapter 17, verses 13 through 26 to get us started. Hmm. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. So picking up in verse 20, who does Jesus pray for and what kind of unity does Jesus have in mind here? Okay, so we get into the third part of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Prayer, the first part, um, he prays for himself, for his own glory. Um, You know, give me the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. He prays for himself. And then secondly, he prays for, I would say, at least simply the apostles, the 12 that were called, now 11 because Judas has left, um, that are around him in the upper room, uh, his immediate disciples there who will preach the word. That's why I'm not including just everyone like Mary Magdalene or whatever that was a follower of Jesus. He's specifically hmm. zeroing in on the apostles who will preach and through their word, the world will believe. So we really, all of us can trace our spiritual genealogy to the apostles. You know, they were eyewitnesses of his glory and we get the New Testament from them, etc. Mm-hmm. So he's praying not only for the apostles, but for those who will believe in Jesus through their message or witness or through their testimony. So that's everybody else. That's the entire world, uh, 20 centuries of Christians. He's now praying for everybody. So it's pretty awesome. In verse 21, how do you understand the effect so that the world may believe? And is there a difference in the way the term world is used in this verse than elsewhere? 
So, um, you know, Jesus envisions the mission here. He knows very well what's going to happen. He says it to them after his resurrection. He says, this is what is written, that Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning uh, in Jerusalem. And so, and then he says to the apostles, you are witnesses of these things. So now he's praying for people who will hear their witness, their message, and believe in Jesus as a result. And so his desire, his prayer for them, is that all of the believers may be one, he says in verse 21, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the idea here is our unity is a perfect oneness First and foremost, with the triune God, as you, Father, were in me, may they be in us. There's a union between us and God, specifically Christ. As Paul says in Romans 6, all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried with him through baptism and death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We have been, we have died with Christ. We have been raised to new life with Christ. That's spiritual union language. We have become one with Jesus through the Spirit and by faith in the gospel. So that's what he means. May they be one. May they be one with each other horizontally. May they first and foremost be one with us vertically with God. The unity then is ultimately perfect. It's a perfection in unity. We'll talk more about that in a minute, I know. But it's based on the Trinity. Individual persons having a relationship with one another in perfect unity. That's Mm -hmm. patterned after the Trinity. We're going to get that in heaven. Now here's, and we're going to make this clear in a minute. He'll make this clear. But there's an on-looking world. And in this, I think we're going John 3.16 sense of world. There's an onlooking group of unconverted human beings, created in the image of God, but rebelling against him. That the world may believe that Jesus, that God sent Jesus into the world, that this is the true gospel. May the believers be one. Hmm. May they be genuinely converted and saved, union with God, but may they be one with each other and loving each other and fellowshipping well with each other because that has evangelistic power. Similar to what John 13 talks about with that evidence that we are his disciples if we have love for one another. Yeah, and the outcome in verse 21, that the world may believe that you have sent me. That that seems to be believing in Jesus for their salvation. Hmm. So what is the glory that Christ speaks of giving his followers in verse 22? I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. So the idea here is glory is a radiant display of the attributes of God. So Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. If you've seen him, you've seen the Father. So in the ways in which the Father permitted Jesus to display God's glory, so that would be by his um, invisible glory, by not radiant glory, but that would be just how he acted how he dealt with people, the words he spoke, the miracles he did, all of those things displayed God, put God on display as merciful, powerful, loving God. Stilling of the storm, glorified God. The feeding of the 5,000, glorified God. Walking on water, 
glorified God. So all of that glory was given from the Father to Jesus. He glorified his servant Jesus, as Peter said to the Cornelius. God has exalted his servant Jesus. Peter prayed uh, Pentecost. He poured glory into Jesus. And also for three of them, Peter, James, and John, the Mount of Transfiguration. He's becoming radiant and shining like the sun. Mm. So all of that glory then passed from the Father to the Son and then out to the uh, true believers, the apostles. And they drunk, they drank it in and they saw, oh, Jesus is God. He is God in the flesh. And so that's the glory the Father gave to Jesus that, that he committed to them. Uh, I have given them the glory that you gave me with the result that they may be one as we are one. That's salvation language. That may be brought to complete unity. Mm. So you think about um, Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, oh man, they're not going to be hanging out together before not, Jesus not comes. Not big fans of each not other. Not at all. They're enemies, but now they're one. Hmm. And what is the center of their unity? Jesus. They both believe that Jesus is the Son of God, hmm. and then that there's and that they're sinners. They need a Savior. He is the Savior. They're both on the same page on that. They hmm. become one. And the two of them, you could imagine the two of them paired off to go off do some mission work. Hmm. Like you guys would be at each other's throats. What's made you one? Jesus, let me tell let you me about tell him. You. Yeah, that's so good. You know, unity is a word that gets thrown around a lot. And I think that it can be well-intentioned, but the vision of unity here is incredible. It's incredible. So what is, you mentioned it a moment ago, but let's dig in a little more, the measure of Christian unity in verses 22 and 23. Okay, so that uh, they may be one as we are one. There's the measure. Mm -hmm. As much as the Father and the Son are one, that's Trinitarian unity. Mm -hmm. uh, then verse 23, I in them, by the Spirit, Jesus is in us, mm -hmm. and you in me, by the oneness of the Trinity, um, may they be brought to complete unity, uh, it says one translation, a progressive unification. Mm -hmm to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. So this is, the depths of this are hard to even imagine. We have to start, first of all, with the doctrine of the Trinity. And the doctrine of the Trinity teaches uh, really three truths. There is one God and only one God. This one God has eternally existed in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the three persons are not co-identical with each other. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, the Spirit is not the Father. They are, in some mysterious ways, and how do we use the word separate and one, but they are separate persons in perfect oneness. Now, what is the nature of that oneness? It is an eternal mystery. Believing in three separate gods, each with their own spheres of influence and responsibilities is easy for us. We are kind of naturally polytheistic. If we're, if we're not converted into monotheism, we could readily imagine like, like the federal government with bureaus and agencies and the gods and goddesses looked after agriculture, the sea, fishing, I mean, whatever. Yeah. What any function you could have a god or goddess. The Hindus have millions of gods and goddesses. Yeah. All right. We believe in one God who has existed in three persons. So therefore the essential mystery of the Trinity is oneness. Mm. How can the Father and the Son be separate enough to have a relationship with each other and love each other and talk to each other and relate to each other and, and, and all that, it's a relationship, and be perfectly one. We don't know. But I think it has to do with what we saw in Philippians 2, 2, where it says, um, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Mm -hmm. So like-minded means you think alike, 
Having the same love means you love alike. Uh, one in spirit and purpose in that translation, uh, it means um, going in the same direction, intending the same outcomes, and not only that, but getting there the same way. Just agree about everything. Yeah. Well, what's amazing is we're going to spend eternity in heaven with a multitude greater than anyone uh, could count in perfect oneness with all of them. We're going to agree about everything. There's not a single thing the Father and the Son disagree about or ever have. Mm. So the perfect oneness of the Trinity, that's the, the measure of this. Yeah. So we look forward to that day when yeah. that will be brought to perfect perfection. Perfect oneness, yes. But in the meantime, in we the look meantime. around us and we say, how do we pursue that now? What does sure. that look like for us to pursue this? Knowing that ultimately that won't be right. perfected until heaven, but certainly this ought to be something that we long for, strive for in this Do you life. see verse 23? Let me ask you a question sure. since you asked me so many questions. As you look <laughs> at verse 23, do you see a an in the meantime sense of the mm. verse? And in this world sense? Or are we talking about heavenly, purified, perfect unity up in heaven? And just that becoming language seems to becoming. imply that there's a process no. happening process. now so that the world may know there's, there's the folks world watching, is watching this go and on. they need to believe yeah. this is for here and now. Mm. So verse 23, John 17, 23 is a here and now verse with an eternal perspective. Mm -hmm. Someday we will be as one as the Father and the Son are one. The more we can head toward that now, the better. Mm. Let's start with marriage. You're married, I'm married. Mm -hmm. The more that you can be one with your wife in heart and mind, mm. agreeing with her about everything, the healthier your marriage is going to be. The, the more I can be with my wife, the same thing. One in heart and mind, in one spirit, one mind, agreeing about everything, the better. You know, we are leaders of a church, you know, elders, plurality of elders. The more that the elders can be in Trinitarian unity, truly, genuinely agreeing with each other about the right ends and the right means to the end, the better. Mm -hmm. Now, as there's that process of little by little becoming more and more Trinitarianly one, it's not a word, but more and more one like the Trinity, the Father and the Son are one, the better that local church will say, that the, the that local church, the more evangelistic power that church will have because the world will believe mm -hmm. that God sent Jesus into the world. They'll say, how is it that you folks are so one. Now we think about what's going on in our culture these days. There's been a lot of racial tension, uh, a lot of, of uh, societal unrest, mm -hmm. a lot of bad history, starting with chattel slavery in our country and on through the Jim Crow era and in legalized, institutionalized racism, which only in my lifetime has been removed. And then lots of, of holdovers from those devastating days. And it's been a very difficult and divisive issue. It's been very, very sad to mm. see it. But we know that the gospel is the only remedy, and it is a remedy. It will be a perfect remedy. So we will have people in heaven completely delivered from faulty views, from racism, from hatred, from bitterness, all of that perfectly one with each other. To know that means that the efforts that we make now will be beneficial. Mm. The more we can take steps toward genuine unity in the gospel, the better it will be for evangelism. Yeah. So when we have people that ordinarily, like Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, would have been at each other's throats, but instead they genuinely love each other. Mm. Let me tell you something that happened. Um, it's a little story, but uh, every Saturday, Calvin and I go down to downtown. There's a public square in downtown Durham here where there's a big 
statue of a bull and bull city and all that and there it's a big kind of congregating area and all that and there's some park benches and we sit there and read a book on evangelism and just make ourselves available to share the gospel with people and all that well this time we were actually just there for the show to some degree because there were two people there who had set up some very clear banners about christ and about heaven and hell and the need to repent and they had speakers and a microphone and they were preaching as far as i could tell the true gospel boldly and one was a black man and one was a white man and they were arm in arm praying with their heads bowed before they began and i'll tell you what there had been a black black lives matter rally there several several weeks before that i didn't see anything like that kind of unity there but these two men bowing their heads arm in arm praying to jesus for help for the holy spirit to be with them as they boldly proclaim the gospel uh, I think when the world sees that, they say, "What, what's happened with you two that you genuinely love each other? It's like, let me tell you, yeah. Jesus, Jesus is what brought that unity. Yeah. So as we become more and more unified with each other, and some of that's our own sanctification, we grow in holiness, yeah. and then we get rid of bad ideas and faulty thoughts, so does, so does this other person. Little by little, we're being brought together in the truth. As that progressive unification happens, the gospel prospers. What a joy to know with that eternal hope that we have set before us, that this work will be completed, that efforts toward that end are not in vain. Because Christ has risen from the dead, we have great hope that our labor is not in vain. It's also been, you know, I'm writing a book on heaven. It's been explosive Mm. for me to meditate on what perfect unity will look like with hundreds of millions of brothers and sisters, my closest friends. (laughs) (laughs) Hundreds of millions of them. Like, oh, and we're all going to agree, but... We're not going to lose our identity. Hmm. We'll have our, our identity. You will be Wes. I'll be Andy. Maybe we'll have new names, but our histories will go with us. And we will maintain individuality, but still agree about everything. That's great. Mm-hmm. These verses have been full of talk about unity in mm-hmm. Jesus' prayer, about unity here. Uh, but verse 23 ends on love. Mm. What is the measure of the love the Father has for believers, and how is this manifested if Christ's disciples, as we were just speaking of, display unity with each other? Yeah. I mean, that to let the world know that you have sent me, um, that Jesus is the Son of God, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Those words are explosive. Mm. The same way, Father, you love me, you love them. Now that's incredible. Mm. I can understand why the Father would set apart and have a special love for Jesus. But Jesus is saying here, they'll, the Father will love you as much as he loves me. Now, we will not be God, and we will not be the only begotten Son of God. There's a uniqueness. But I, I t- tend to think of it this way. You know, what, what the Father said about the Son, this is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He'll be able to say that about all of us. And in our perfect redemption, we will be uh, glorified. So he will have a genuine affection and attraction for each one of us Mm. in heaven. And he has it now if we're believers in Christ right now. Absolutely. Well, we're coming down the home stretch in Mm -hmm. John 17. Mm -hmm. What does verse 24 teach us about Jesus' eternal goal? Mm -hmm. And what effect will seeing Jesus' glory have on us? Oh, man, what an explosive. I mean, all these these (laughs) verses are so, so Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory that you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Wow. 
Okay, so first we start with, uh, let's just start with the centerpiece of the verse is glory. Mm. And Jesus asked at the beginning of John 17, Father, give me that glory I had with you before the world began. It's the glory as God the Son, the Mm. second person of the Trinity. God dwells in unapproachable light. Jesus will have that, that radiant display of overwhelming glory in heaven. And he's going to shine with that radiant divine glory, glory as God. And he's he's prayed that he'll get it back. The Father will give it back to him because it is his. It, it belongs to him. And he says, uh, that glory that you gave me because you have loved me before the creation of the world. Jesus is a mm. pre-existent mm. being. And you loved me back before we created the world. So again, that's a strong indication of intertrinitarian eternal love that shows beyond the shadow of a doubt that God did not create the world out of loneliness mm-hmm. or need yeah. like or boredom. There's nothing to lack. do. Let's there's do something there's missing. some lack, some missing. So mm. let's make the world. The Father doesn't need anything from the world. He gives everything to the world. He's a limitless supply. Any more than we can contribute a flickering flame of light to the sun. <laughs> the sun doesn't need us. I'm good. Thanks. <laughs> I've got light <laughs> and heat in abundance, yeah. and you cannot contribute anything to me. Mm. So the Father then created the world out of fullness, not out of need. And there was a full, passionate, powerful love between the Father and the Son before the world began. All right. So you loved me before the world began. I had glory with you before the world began. Well, here's the real point, though. I entered the world to save human beings, created in the image of God, rebelling against the laws of God. I, The elect who you gave me before the foundation of the world, my goal for them is that they would see my glory. I want them to see my glory. More than that, I want them to be with me. I want to spend time with them. I want to, to eat meals with them in heaven. I want to walk down the, the streets of the new Jerusalem or through the, the beautiful byways and paths of the new earth. I want to show them all of these things. I want this relationship with them. I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am. That's just the intimacy. I want to be with you. Why would you want to be with? It's like when Jesus said to them, you know, the disciples, I've earnestly desired to eat this supper supper with you before I suffer. It's like, why? What's so special about us? I love you. I want to be with you. So he's saying that. This is what I want. Well, here's the thing. Just in one translation. Father, I want dot, dot, dot. So Jesus is expressing what he wants to his father. That's the essence of prayer. I want that. Well, do you think he's going to get what he wants? Absolutely. He is going to get what he wants. Mm. I want and he could say it's by name. I want Wes to be with me where I am and to see my glory. And so what's going to happen when we see his glory? Well, First John says we're going to be transformed. Yeah. We will see him as he is. We'll be instantaneously perfected and made glorious ourselves. That's what's going to happen when we see his glory. Yeah. And we're never going to tire of seeing it. We're going to see and see and see his glory, and there'll still be more to see. Hmm. So much in John these 17, verses. Ah, uh, it's beautiful. So what does it mean that the world does not know the Father. And what is the significance of mm-hmm. Jesus' claim to know the Father? Mm-hmm. Well, we have to go back to John 17, 3. And Jesus said, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom I sent. But the world doesn't know you. The world does not know you. Mm-hmm. And he said in John 16, 3, 
he said, they will do these things because they have not known the Father or me. So that's the persecution punishing wicked, evil things. So here we, we've got to go to the deepest level. Righteous Father, he cries out. And this, I remember hearing a sermon on this, the cry. You know, it's like we think about the cry of dereliction from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is similar. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. It's, it's, it's almost like, like the cry of dereliction on behalf of the world. And they don't care that they don't know him. They don't know what they don't know. Yeah. They don't know that they're, they're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. They don't know that they don't have anything if they don't have God. And so the, the, the world has not known you. They don't know who you are. So the, the knowing here is at the deepest level. They don't know about you. They don't know accurately who you are, but they don't know you in an intimate uh, covenant relationship. But I do. I do. I know you. And so he said, I'm not in the world. I'm not, I'm, or I'm not of the world. I'm not like the world. I do know you, Father. And I know who you are. I know you intimately and perfectly. And they... The disciples mm. at this point, maybe all of those that believe through the word, everyone, know that you have sent me. That's how we're Christians. Yeah. So that's that's pretty awesome. That's great. All right. One last question that I have for you and then would love to hear any final mm -hmm. thoughts you have on John 17 as we wrap up our time. But how will Jesus fulfill the promise that he makes in verse 26? Oh, wow. And what will the effect be of Jesus' continual revelation of the Father? Okay, the this, is, this is right down Main Street of the book I'm writing. I have made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known. In order that the love you have for me may be in them, and I myself may be in them. In other words, I'm going to teach them more and more about you. And as I do, they're going to just love you more and more and more. And they're going to know that you love them more and more and more. They're going to have a sense of the magnitude. What, what I like to say is the dimensions and the details. They're going to have a sense of the forest and the trees. They're going to have a sense of just how wide and long and high and deep is your love for them. And they're going to love you with an ever-expansive love based on knowledge. So I'm going to reveal you. I've already done some re revelation, but there's more to tell. There's more revealing. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to keep revealing. Now, you could say, well, that's for the rest of our lives. So I'm going to keep revealing, and then the revelation will stop. Then we'll be in heaven. But will it? That doesn't make any sense. God's an infinite being. We will always be finite beings. We will never be omniscient. So fundamentally to my book on heaven is we will learn God forever, and God will teach us himself forever. Some of how he'll do that is to teach us history. He'll say, let me show you what I did. You don't know 99.99999% of what I did. Let me show it to you yeah. so that you will know how great a God I am. It's like, show me. And we'll be seeing stories from various centuries and from various brothers and sisters, how he saved them, how he used them, what he did, how he orchestrated it, how he protected them from Satan, different things. It's like, And every new revelation will be, I love God more, just mm -hmm. more and more and more. So I have revealed you, and I'm going to keep on revealing you. There's always more for me. So, And, and everything we learn about the Father, we'll learn it through Jesus in some way. Never apart. It's like, the Father has his own things. All right, so let me tell you something. Nothing to do with Jesus now. Just, no, that will not happen. Everything we learn about the Father, we'll learn through Jesus. I will continue to reveal the Father to them forever. Mm. Praise God for that promise. Amen. Any final thoughts on the, the passage as a whole? So we've looked at this marvelous prayer of Jesus in John 17. All right, so many, much. <laughs> sure. We could go back to verse one, start over and say different words and it would be every bit as awesome. Uh, I guess what I would say is the best way that I have ever learned to study this 
is to remember that everything that Jesus asked for, he gets. Mm -hmm. So go through line by line and see what is he asking for and know that he'll get it. And especially verse 24, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. That's gonna happen. Mm -hmm. Every one of us, the oneness. We should never think, poor Jesus, he prayed for oneness and look at us, we're bickering and complaining. It's like, yeah, it's bad. We shouldn't do it. Let's be brought to complete unity then. But we know that someday we will be brought to complete unity. So the more we can act like it now, the more evangelistic power we'll have. So I don't know, just just realize everything he asked for, he gets and rejoice because those are some pretty awesome things he asked for. Well, this has been part two of episode 36 in the book of John. We invite you to join us next time for episode 37 entitled The Arrest, where we'll discuss John chapter 18, verses 1 through 18. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.